thanks for uh, joining us here tonight. Um, really glad you're here. Just want to uh, run a couple things by you before Anna um, takes this thing and runs with it. I just want to encourage you guys. We are um, really grateful for the way that Anna serves our church in this way. Um, and she is an apologist, and this is her this is her career. This is what she does. Um, and so this is hers is a ministry that we are eager to support. Uh, that we support as a church, and I would love it if you felt the least bit inclined to support her individually. She did not ask me to do this, by the way, and she's probably as uncomfortable as she will be all night. <laughs> you could ask her an impossible question. She will probably be more comfortable than she is right now. Um, uh, but if you feel in any way inclined uh, to support her ministry, I, I want to encourage you to do that. Um, Fortunately, she married a good man with a very interesting last name. And so if you Google search Anna Kitko, you're going to find her, especially if you put Anna Kitko Rashio Christie. And that will take you to a web page. It's the first thing that pops up, yep. right? Yep. And, and if you are inclined to support her, um, you, you'll have very clear instructions to do that. Also, she has a really significant uh, social media presence. And if you, especially on YouTube, um, if you look for her on YouTube, there's lots of material there and material that you can share with a lot of folks. Um, the questions that we get to address here um, are addressed there and a whole lot more. So I just want to encourage you guys um, to get all the information you want and encourage you to support her as much as you possibly can. Um, thanks so much for being here. Why don't you put your hands together and tell Anna you're glad that she's here. So this is the crew that likes to suffer mentally. Is that? <laughs> Tonight's a doozy. It really is. It's nice to see you. Um, this is our last one for a while. So hang in there with me. Remember, don't hesitate to ask questions at the end of the night. And um, let's get to it. You ready? All right. Welcome back to Russia Christie Community Tonight, where we delve into the realm of apologetics evangelism. Apologetics, of course, being the study of defending Christianity and evangelism, being the active duty of all Christians to speak into the lives of those around them about the life and message of our Creator and Savior, Jesus Christ. We don't want to just group together as a family, only ever exclusively talking to each other. We need to take the tools we learn in-house and proceed outside of the church to invite the people who do not know Jesus to the introduction. And the best way that I can tell to do this is to strengthen ourselves by exposure. We practice. We offer potential objections to Christianity, and then we study together the answers to those objections. The result is a spirit that is fortified and prepared for difficult discussions, both emotionally and intellectually. Case in point, tonight's topic, right? The sovereignty of God and our free will. Tonight's going to be tough. This is a really high-level, high-precision thinking exercise this evening. I've done my best to synthesize a crash course for you all here, but if we get to the end and you're like, I have no idea what's happening, I want you to know that that's okay. This is going to be a lot very, very fast, so be prepared for that. Hang in there with me and we can do this and we will do this together. Last month we focused on a heavily emotional topic because it involved a lot of self-reflection. Tonight we focus on a different quality of emotional response. I suspect that for most of us, somewhere along the line, we've been exposed to very heatedly opinionated individuals who believe this material is locked down tightly. For others, we avoid entire schools of thought of this content because everyone we've ever encountered holding to those positions have been condescending jerks. 
and that's not an unreasonable reaction. So tonight we're going to do a ton of work understanding context and focusing on all three of our lenses informing spiritual maturity with a particular emphasis on orthopathy or the writing of our attitudes before a theological discussion. Because for a great deal of us, we've been in churches that take a militant stance against some of the positions we'll be discussing tonight. And in spite of this reality, your friendly neighborhood apologist is going to suggest emphatically that you ought not to break fellowship with other Christians over their personal view of human free will and God's sovereignty. If they hold to one of the positions that we're going to be studying tonight, if they don't hold to one of those positions, they're heretic. Just cast them out. I'm just kidding. Don't do that either. (laughs) Meaning that this debate is a secondary issue and that there's a case to be made for each position that I'm going to offer. So no more snide dismissals of Christians who disagree with our personal position on this. And when we encounter any deprecating dismissals from fellow Christians on this subject matter about alternative positions, you will have the tools that are needed to correct that error. Tonight should be an exercise in poking holes in our own view of free will and practicing humble and honest investigations of ideas um, in this debate that have been around for centuries. Why? Well, because in my experience, in general, the folks that really want to discuss this topic are also regularly combative in their theology. And this isn't true in every case, but if you've run in theological circles at any depth, you'll start to pick up on the fact that this issue is easily one of the top three things to get upset about. So since we're budding apologists, and since nights like these are designed to strengthen our spiritual metal, let's take a second to focus on appropriate mental sparring conduct. That's part of my job as a train about that. What do we do when we know we are about to enter an intellectual ring where combative attitudes are expected? And how do we employ wisdom and care in an environment that is about to inevitably become heated? We set our hearts and our minds on winning the person and not the argument before anything comes out of our mouths. And we do this by steel manning our opponent. Steel manning is the attempt to accurately and optimistically represent an alternative position to your own, even to the point of strengthening it against you. This is the opposite of what is called straw manning an argument in formal logic. A straw man is a false representation of your opponent's position. And this is what happens when someone gives the impression of having refuted an argument when the reality is that the real argument was never addressed. It was just replaced with a false one that was then torn down. The point being, as good apologists, we never want to be arguing against a distorted version of our opponent's position because ultimately behaving in this way is fraudulent. It's poor form intellectually at best, and it can be straight sin at worst. But even though it's cheap and failed reasoning, it still ends up being persuasive to many, which is why I suspect it's the go-to for many attempted apologetic discussions on free will in the church. I mean, look how often this tactic is employed by our political leaders in debates with audiences cheering and clapping enthusiastically. Straw man arguments are highly persuasive, even in their obvious error, because they feed into an inescapable part of the human psyche, confirmation bias. Let me show you how this works for a minute. This will will matter for our talk tonight. Every human being carries with them certain beliefs that are foundational to who they are. From a psychological perspective, it's almost impossible for human beings to be objective. In fact, many human behavior studies have showed this throughout the last century. For example, in one study, an ambiguous drawing made to appear as though it could be interpreted as either the number 13 or the letter B was placed before a group of people. The people who were prompted that they were looking for a number 
when the symbol was flashed in front of them, automatically said it was the number 13. The alternative group, when prompted that they were looking for a letter, and when the same flash occurred, they automatically interpreted the symbol to be the letter B. The purpose of the study was to demonstrate that when given ambiguity, an individual will automatically interpret that ambiguity along the same lines of their already held belief, in spite of the fact that an objective position would simply to state that the symbol is ambiguous. In the cases where the individual is emotionally invested in the content of an argument or already has a desired outcome, this phenomenon is even more pronounced. From a psychological perspective, again, folks who are entrenched in a deeply held belief are basically incapable of escaping their bias. This isn't their fault or failure to think openly, but rather a biological phenomenon, it's well documented, that affects everything from their brain's ability to process the dissonant information all the way to how they recall that information at a later date. Memories themselves are stored in our brain in a selective way automatically. Your ability to recall information rests in a reinforcement of expectation and largely changes in emotional states, which means that even your memories are untrustworthy as objective. Your memories are a conglomeration of interpretation, how you felt during the transpiring of events, how you felt others felt about said events, etc. And those interpretations are biased toward your already deeply held beliefs. None of us are outside of this reality. So what do we do here? Well, confirmation bias and memory bias are not really an issue when the content of one's bias is seated in truth. The only time it's a problem is when one is entrenched in a position that is false. Hence, the straw man's argument's power. So long as someone can present a position, even though it's fraudulent, that confirms the bias of our listeners, that person will be more persuasive than we will be every single time. That is, unless we battle this phenomenon with a corollary of the straw man, the steel man. I call your attention to this manner of argumentation because it's so rarely used in our era, and I'm not sure why. And it's a shame because steel manning is the only way to reroute the psychological processing of both confirmation bias and cognitive dissonance. And the reason I use it as an apologist is for this reason. It's definitely an uncomfortable way to argue, but with practice, it gets much easier, and proofs, by virtue of their presentation, become persuasive automatically. Steel manning is the attempt to accurately represent your opponent as not only accurate, but also to strengthen their position to the best of your ability before you even present your case at all. Even if you completely disagree with them or their position is absurd. The point of doing so is to demonstrate to your audience that you yourself fit into their entrenched belief, whether they're aware of their entrenchment or not. You're providing them with material to confirm and strengthen their bias. Essentially, you're doing the public action of taking onto yourself a greater burden than when you first set out to dismantle, openly in front of both your opponent and your audience. And what this does is place you in a psychological safe zone. What you're about to present already fits within the realm of their firmly held belief, even though it actually conflicts with the already held belief. Which means that from a psychological perspective, again, when you begin tweaking and dismantling your opponent's position, their brains are not interpreting information that is anticipated to be contrary to your listeners. You're providing information that is a corollary to your listener's position. Do you see the change there? Your opponent and your audience, when their brains feel understood and or strengthened, their guard comes down. This works with your spouse as well. 
There's no cognitive dissonance reaction psychologically. Instead of trying to scale their brain castle wall, you get to walk in the back door because you're a mental member of their household. You're not an enemy at the gates. You're a member of their clan who has gleaned new information that they may need. And now you're in a much more welcome position to present your case. Moreover, your opponent and your audience recall in their biased memory what the experience of hearing you was like. And instead of discomfort, they will recall pleasantness, which is crucial if you want to argue publicly and privately on the regular. Can you see how powerful this tool can be? You need not rely on calling out your opponent's failures, rubbing their noses in their bias, or chastising their listeners to be open-minded. All you need is practice representing your interlocutor, the person you're speaking to, well, and being bold enough and practiced enough in your craft to strengthen their position before dismantling it. And what is more is that no matter what the content of your debate, what you are demonstrating in taking that burden onto yourself for their sake is precisely the type of Christ-like demeanor and character that we as Christians are expected to model anyway. That even on the debate stage or in one-on-one -on -one conversation, Christ's sacrifice for our deliverance is echoed in how we speak even when we're there for the purpose of persuading or winning an argument. What a welcome and glorious burden to bear for we who proclaim Christ and him crucified. What we want to embody in apologetics is that no matter who we face, what worldview is popular at the moment, what painful conversation we are about to have with a loved one, and what our attitudes are as we respond to an internet troll is you can't compete with me because I want you to win too. What we want to avoid as setting apologists is what is called a pyrrhic victory. This is a victory that inflicts so great a toll on the victor that it is tantamount to a defeat. The concept was first articulated after the Battle of Asculum in 279 BC where Pyrrhus of Epirus triumphed against the Romans, but his victory cost so many lives in that battle that he could not continue waging war. Pyrrhus didn't have his mindset on the long game. He simply focused on the battle at hand, and although he won that battle, he lost the war. As practicing apologists getting stronger in our abilities to articulate difficult theological content, do not succumb to the temptation of mopping the floor with a person to win the argument. If you do this, your opponent and those watching you will be turned off from Christianity due to your conduct. You'll have won the argument, but you will have lost the person. Apologetics is not a weapon against people. Apologetics is a weapon against the evil one and his lies for the sake of the people. Our attitudes are to be one of using apologetics to clear away the debris and false constructions of the mind to make room for the people we interact with to consider the work of Christ. And if all we ever do is argue with people for the sake of building up our own sense of pride and competency, we do a great disservice to the church. And when those outside of the body of Christ consider joining us but are dissuaded because they're only ever encountering egocentric indifference when they raise objections, then we grieve the Holy Spirit. We as apologists, myself included, with a thirst for high-level theology, must regularly be reminded to use our craft to feature Christ in every fiber of our being to such a high degree that the best possible outcome for our life here on earth is that our names fall into obscurity. And the only memory left of us was that Christ was proclaimed. That is even our hearts are to be, are, it's even where our hearts are to be set every time without fail before every argument we have, even to the degree of arguing over important but still secondary issues, like the topic tonight. Get it? Got it? Good? Let's move on. 
out of orthopathy and onto content. God knows all things, including the future. What God knows will come to pass because God is never mistaken. So how is it possible that human beings have free will? Is everything is, if everything is predetermined before it happens, then you and I are not free to choose anything other than what has already been predetermined to come to pass, right? We aren't really free to alter the plan, and if the plan is already set and the outcome is already set, then why pray? Why evangelize? Is it possible that we're genuinely fleshy robots? There's an entire podcast movement right now featuring outrageously competent atheist evangelists that is teaching that we absolutely are functionally robots who are running biological programming that gives us the impression of a free will feeling, but that we're not really free to operate outside of that programming whatsoever. I know because I spent hours reviewing Sam Harris and Brett Weinstein arguments to prepare this talk. And they are incredible, lengthy, thought-provoking expositions on humanism and evolutionary biology. And you need to know this as well because your kiddos will be dealing with that argument in their lifetimes if they haven't already. There have been numerous suggestions made that these teachings will directly affect our justice system here in America in that if we are simply living out a biological program that simulates free will, then criminal activity needs to be reassessed because we treat criminal behavior as though the person could have chosen otherwise. And if the reality is that they're simply a victim of predetermined genetic proclivities toward criminal behavior, then how can it be just to prosecute them as though they could have acted differently? In order for us to do this discussion well, we're going to begin where we always do, with the scriptures and with church history. And we're going to allow them to inform the boundaries of our minds in this talk. Because this book, after all, contains the plan for humanity a plan that will help us identify where and how we push back against things like the notion that human beings are fleshy robots, which I think for most of us we can feel intuitively that that isn't true, although we may not be able to quite articulate why. And because we have centuries of fellow believers all hearing from the same Holy Spirit, contending with each other on how best to deal with this paradox, so church history content will matter here immensely. We're dealing with content inside of our Christian family and not with outside material. We need to understand how we got here before teasing out the details. And it's critical we begin with the scriptures and church history primarily because you'll notice they do not focus on human free will and predestination in general. No, instead the scriptures and church history focus on a very specific point in the life of humans on the topic of free will and predestination. And that specific point is the point where in the life of an individual they become saved. The Christian debate about God's sovereignty and our free will begins by framing the discussion around our salvation and then extrapolating outward from that point. Why? Well, because ultimately all of the questions that I've raised so far are not necessarily answered in the Bible. We're given bits and pieces that we are attempting to harmonize, but ultimately God has chosen not to explain himself in every detail on this subject. And we need to recognize that and remain reverent here. It's entirely possible that we will never fully explain these things, and that's okay, because we serve an infinite being. It is logically impossible that we be able to lock down every single detail about God. The details that we lock down are the ones he expressly gives about himself and humanity anyway. So we only have what he's given us. And given that this is true, we should expect paradoxes to arise that we have to grapple with and come to terms with. In the same way that the Bible is not an exhaustive encyclopedia of human history, the Bible is not an exhaustive analysis of metaphysics. 
there are going to be things that God remains silent on. So as we continue locking down that what we do know, make certain you are preparing your brain to have the option of failing to come to a conclusion tonight. Because with paradoxes comes that option for Christians. You are free to choose to abstain from taking a stance here. And I want you to know that. This doesn't mean that I'm going to advocate avoidance. It simply means that honestly, when it comes to the biblical paradoxes with Christians a centuries over, genuinely grappling over these things, it's all right, and I would argue healthy, to focus your time and energy on what we do know, that it is our duty and obedience as Christians to spread the gospel. Our attitudes about studying theology and apologetics should have a healthy daily reminder to not allow ourselves to dwell too long on these things in lieu of doing the daily duty of going out and purposely giving the gospel to folks who either have not heard it or deny it. Because even in the case of apologetics, the enemy can use preoccupation of interesting topics to derail us into obsessing over these things. And in turn, a hyper-focus on certain topics at the expense of our daily obedience to our calling, which is ultimately idolatry. We're to flee idolatry. So if you're prone to becoming obsessive over certain theological topics like tonight's, I'm speaking of myself here, apologists are guilty of doing this on the regular, Make certain you have set up for yourself boundaries to check and curb your sinful nature to avoid evangelism using the excuse of theological studies. That being said, let's go ahead and lock down what we know contextually. Since the dawn of Christianity in the first century, the church has gone through different movements or preoccupations with specific subject matter, where the deep thinkers and theologians hyper-focus on certain subjects in response to what was going on around them. This is totally normal as the responsibility of the body of Christ is always to be ready to respond to the culture around them. So through the ages, we have focused material on things like how to respond to mysticism, how to articulate the Trinity in a precise way, the development of creeds, how to articulate Jesus' divinity in a precise way, all of which is couched in terms that Christianity officially affirms and beliefs that Christianity officially denies. By the time we get to the 1500s, we have a renaissance of material. Protestantism is born as a direct result of the Reformation, a movement that placed the Bible in the hands of the general public in languages that they could read, as opposed to being kept exclusively in languages that only the highly educated could read. There's a ton to unpack here, and we don't have time to do this justice tonight. All you need to understand is that it is at this point in history where we get the precision focus and emphasis of Christians wanting to isolate and dwell on free will and sovereignty, or the sovereignty of God paradox. The theologian who was chief among them was a man by the name of John Calvin, whose work emphasized and focused on developing our understanding of predestination in a hyper-focused way. And he wrote volumes weaving in and out of harmonizing major topics like providence, sin, the atonement, union with Christ, as well as ecclesiology and the sacraments, ecclesiology being the study of the church. And near the end of his life's work called the Institutes, right here, He focuses on developing the details of St. Augustine's fourth century doctrine of predestination, of which Thomas Aquinas developed it yet more in the 13th century, followed by Martin Luther's contemporary development in Germany during Calvin's life. But what Calvin did was really drop the gavel on the subject, saying at one point, all are not created on equal terms, but some are preordained to eternal life, others to eternal damnation, and accordingly, as each has been created for one or other of these ends, we say that he has been predestined to life or to death, the result of which was a sort of deep dive by those who were following and studying his work, and for those who were following and studying his work and ultimately taking issue with it, and those of his disciples. Because what Calvin had suggested was that in order to harmonize the entirety of the Bible on this subject, when it came to our salvation, God moved first 
by pre-selecting those to whom he would give salvation. The implication being that there were therefore others that God did not choose for salvation, and therefore they were pre-selected for damnation. By the year 1610, 50 or so years after Calvin's death, those who were upset by some of the interpretations surrounding predestination had authored five articles of remonstrance. Remonstrance means reproachful protest. Having been led by a man by the name of Arminius, these articles of remonstrance became the foundation for Arminianism. By 1619, the response to those five articles was articulated at the Council of Dort a council convened to address the issues raised by the remonstrant doctrine. And this is why, to this day, followers of John Calvin and his subsequent disciples refer to themselves primarily as five-point Calvinists, the emphasis on the five issues being the very core of the controversy for Protestants the world over. So what we have here is a robust, thoughtful, Christ-centered systematic theology having been developed by Calvin in the tradition of great Christian thinkers in previous centuries. Calvin then dies, after which some of his students said, yeah, we agree everywhere but five specific places. Those places were, number one, how far sin affects the individual's ability to choose God or depravity. Number two, how does God choose who will believe him or election? Number three, how does Christ's death forgive and to whom or atonement? Number four, to what degree do we play a role in believing God or the new birth? Number five, can we lose our salvation once we've gained it, or perseverance? The Arminians argued that the process of becoming saved looks something like this. The human individual, prior to becoming a Christian, does indeed have free will, but that free will is limited by human sin, and therefore the pre-Christian state of man is to always be freely choosing to seek after sin, because that's all they know. And this means that because they are always seeking after sin, they're incapable of seeking after God or becoming Christians on their own. At some point, however, in the life of that sinful human being, God will begin showing his love for them. The Arminians call this prevenient grace, or a special type of grace that God gives out of love that precedes the individual's choice to follow Christ. Think of it like God opening a window in that person's life that alerts them that he's there and enables them some time to no longer be completely bound in their sinfully depraved state and consider becoming a Christian. And it's here during this provenient grace window where the individual is free to choose to accept God's offer to save or to reject him. If the individual chooses to believe, then God regenerates that individual. They are justified before God and they're saved. Then through the sanctification part of their life as they work together with the Holy Spirit to become spiritually mature, they have an option to grow, stay where they are spiritually, or resist the Holy Spirit all the way to and including a point where the individual can lose their salvation and go back to where they were before God offered them that prevenient grace window. This is where you hear terms like backsliding or falling away. To remember all these things, we're going to use the acronym LILAC for the Arminian position on those specific five topics we already named. Number one, limited depravity. God will place you in a position for you to freely choose yourself where you are, um, not completely limited by your sin. Number two, individual responsibility. Your election to salvation is contingent on your choice. 
Number three, limitless atonement. Jesus' work on the cross covers the entire world, but is only effective for those who choose God. Number four, arrestable grace. Some people will choose to deny God after he has offered regeneration. And number five, conditional security. You are personally responsible for whether or not you stay saved. In response to these five points, Theodore Beza, John Calvin's chief disciple, responded to each with a re-emphasis on what Calvin had been articulating in his systematic theology. Beza and his acolytes responded that no, in fact, the process of becoming saved looks a bit different than what Arminianism suggests. Instead, they argued that they agree that mankind's free will is limited by sin, but that the depravity that mankind is inflicted with is total. Meaning that when the scriptures say that men are dead in their sins, the idea there is that you should be visualizing someone who is the functional equivalent of a corpse. The notion that God is reaching out to a spiritual corpse and opening a window for that corpse to consider his offer is absurd because they're a corpse and corpses don't do anything. In order for a spiritually dead body to do anything at all would require God to do the action of regenerating first and then from there for the spiritually regenerate to move and consider making choices. So for the Calvinist, regeneration by God must occur first and before the choice to follow God is made as opposed to after the choice is made in Arminianism. And as we would expect, there are natural consequences to this rearranging of the ordo salutis or the steps of, uh, the, or the steps of salvation um, because Calvinism extrapolates logically from there. If God is the primary mover in our salvation, then that means that our election or God's decision to regenerate us is not contingent upon the individual at all. It's exclusively up to him. It also means that if he is the one who is regenerating exclusively and that Jesus' work on the cross is, the only, is only effective for those who are regenerate, then that means that God specifically designed Jesus' work on the cross to only effectively atone for the sins of the elect, not all of mankind. And what is more is that, as we already know, a regenerated person has been changed internally, meaning that their entire disposition toward God and Christianity becomes positive. The grace, therefore, that is given by God in the singular act of regeneration also provides the individual with a natural desire to pursue the one that opened their eyes, which is why the term irresistible is used. It's not that the person is incapable of resisting, it's that the natural consequence of being regenerate is that they will never desire to resist, so it's a moot point to begin with. When God created you in the first place, you didn't help him. It was his sovereign work alone that brought you to life biologically. It's the same when he brings you to spiritual life. It's this effectual grace that he authors alone that works and brings about what God wants to bring about. And since God is solely bringing these things about, when Christ says that of the ones the Father has given him, he will lose none, that means that once you are regenerate, you're regenerate permanently. Your security in, is in God's work alone and does not involve you whatsoever. To remember all this, we're gonna use the acronym TULIP. Number one, total depravity. You're completely dead in your sin and cannot for a single moment consider God's offer of redemption. Number two, unconditional election. God sovereignly chooses who he is pleased to regenerate and who will be left to justly bear the penalty of their sin in an unregenerate state. 
Number three, limited atonement. Jesus' death was designed to atone for only the elect, even though it's sufficiently capable for covering the entire world. Number four, irresistible grace. The natural consequence of experiencing regeneration is a freely chosen desire to continue experiencing God's maturing you into glorification. Number five, perseverance of the saints. You do not have control of your salvation to begin with, therefore you cannot lose what was never yours. God's word is good and he says you will be raised up, therefore you will be raised up, period. So there you go. This is the debate. Ultimately, if we were to boil everything down that we've just discussed, just to like one sentence, the debate would kind of look like this. Do individuals cooperate with God in order to be saved? Or will they be saved regardless of their cooperation? One is called synergism, the other is called monergism. For the Calvinist, salvation is monergistic. For the Arminian, salvation is synergistic. For Calvinism, the great strength of this position is that the sheer amount of biblical passages it harmonizes is overwhelming. On top of this, the level of precision explanation that is available for articulating this position is so vast you could spend multiple lifetimes in it. Do not mistake me here in this talk. Calvinism, in spite of what some preachers try to say, is indeed biblical. And I dare say that of the options out there for explaining these things, the degree to which the Calvinist position has sought to humbly submit to an infinite sovereign God is outstanding. But where there is great strength here by way of argument, there is also significant weakness because it begs a very serious question. If God's the one who regenerates and only the ones he regenerates are saved, then why doesn't God regenerate everyone? Why does anyone go to hell at all? And that feeling that rises up in your gut at the inherent ickiness of this conclusion is precisely why not everyone's persuaded by this position in spite of its strength. For it's in Calvinism's emotional weakness here that Arminianism finds its strength. Because really, Arminianism is simply a nuanced attempt to tweak Calvinism out of its icky conclusions. Surely we cannot imply in our doctrinal statements that God is the author of damnation as well as redemption. And surely what we know about God's patience and love for his people gives credence to the notion of provenient grace, and that is on our own heads and by our own actions that we choose to accept or reject Christ. That feels self-evident. And really, the work of the theologian is to isolate when precision speaking must be tweaked to accurately represent the Christian's understanding of the heart of God. And we're all together, not far off from one another here. Even John Wesley, an avowed Arminian preacher, said straight up that between he and Calvin, they were but a hair's breadth apart in their doctrines. But the great weakness of Arminianism is that it seems to be driven by a desire to insert into scripture nuanced information that isn't expressly there. And that a plain reading of the text seems to naturally arrive at the Calvinist conclusions. And what's more is that the attempt to move the act of regeneration to after the individual chooses God means that the action of the individual is involved before they get saved. And isn't that action a work? And isn't that works righteousness? And isn't works righteousness what we all just protested over with the Roman Catholics? So why are we going back there? I thought justification didn't involve any work. It was entirely God, right? Are you seeing the problem? Major strengths on both sides. Major weaknesses on both sides. But the fact that these two positions, in spite of their strengths and weaknesses, agree to so high a degree is the very reason why it is reprehensible for us to be spending any time in our churches fighting over this with one another to the level that we're seeing it in some theological circles and in families. 
these two positions are genuinely grappling with a paradox that God does not completely explain, and they're both seeking to glorify God. It does not matter at all what denominational background you have on the subject. Every single Protestant denomination teaches emphatically that whatever free will we have as human beings is completely and totally limited by sin and that we are in fact predestined by God. It's simply to what degree that predestination is initially achieved. So for tonight's purposes, if you belong to a Protestant denomination, you may answer the following questions in exactly the same way as your neighboring Christians and be completely consistent in doing so. Do you believe that the Bible teaches predestination? Yes, because it does. Do you believe the Bible teaches that we have free will? Yes, because it does. It's just that our will has limitations sometimes, and those limitations are a sinful human nature that we cannot escape until we become Christians, however that may end up being. The end. No, just kidding. Uh, We forgot one more important thing. There's one more option out there, because... There's a way to avoid this entire controversy altogether, and that's called Molinism. During the same time period as the Calvin versus Arminian fight in Protestantism, a Jesuit Catholic theologian in Spain was developing his own solution to the predestination and free will paradox for the Roman Catholics. For Louis de Molina, the problem we as Bible readers are having is trying to reconcile all this stuff, God's providence, and with our free choice and everything in between is that we're completely misunderstanding what God's omniscience and predestination means in the Bible. Molina argued that perhaps God's foreknowledge of the future wasn't linear, meaning that his knowledge was not limited to just the past, present, and future in this world, but rather that God knows every single possible combination of choices you or I will ever make, including salvation, in every possible world that could exist. And because he knows every possible outcome of our free choices in all possible worlds, therefore God knows all things and is omniscient, but that omniscience does not drive the outcome of the future necessarily. Molina called this kind of knowledge middle knowledge. Let me show you. Under the Molinist perspective, God has three types of knowledge. The first is what is called necessary truths or natural knowledge. These are things that, are sim- that simply are and have nothing to do with God's will or desire. These are things like the laws of mathematics or the laws of logic. The second is middle knowledge, or rather the range of possibilities um, that would, could happen given certain circumstances. And the third is what's called free knowledge, or God's knowledge of his decrees. These are truths that God brings about himself for, or are contingent upon his actions. And these are truths like God created the earth. God's free knowledge also includes his knowledge of the future. Natural knowledge and free knowledge are uncontroversial in Christianity. Everybody affirms that. But it's that middle knowledge part that Molina introduced the equation that was dubious. And it is the special knowledge of all of the if-then scenarios, or what are called counterfactuals, that gives God the ability to set the stage for mankind to freely choose what he wills for them to choose every time. Because if he knows that in scenario A you will freely choose X, then all God has to do is set you up in scenario A if he desires you to accomplish X. Make sense? God can have a knowledge of the future without single-handedly carrying through on making that scenario happen. He simply sets us up in the possible scenario he wishes us to achieve, and we as free agents go about executing our actions of our own free will, accomplishing what God already knew would occur if he set us on that particular task. In order to remember all these, we'll use the acronym ROSES. See what I did there? (laughs) Number one, radical depravity. 
Every aspect of our being is affected by sin, even to the point of us not even wanting to be saved. Number two, overcoming grace. It's God's persistent beckoning that overcomes our depravity. God's relentless chasing is monergistic, but it's also resistible. Number three, sovereign election. God desires all to be saved, but knowing this will not be the case accentuates the fact that it is his chasing alone that ultimately is him choosing us. Number four, eternal life. Believers are transformed into such a state that they cannot lose their salvation. And number five, singular redemption. Christ's sacrifice was large enough to cover all people but will only be effective for those who believe and give in to God's persistent beckoning. You see, the Molinist perspective ingeniously merges the positives of Calvinism, that God controls all things, that man does not contribute to his salvation, that God is the author and finisher of salvation, and that individual election is unconditional, that the believer is completely secure in their salvation. The Molinist perspective also avoids the catastrophe of failing to take into account the positives of the Arminian objections, that God is not the author of sin, that he desires all to be saved, that Christ died for everyone and not simply the elect, and that ultimately God's grace is in fact resistible and the onus for one's entrance into heaven rests upon the individual. It's a really truly brilliant attempt at synthesizing this paradox. But before you go, great, let's all just become honest then. There's a serious component we need to consider here because remember, I'm trying to train you on appropriate attitudes and conduct with handling high theology. That's what we're doing tonight. And you'll notice in my descriptions of how these positions came to be that we began with volumes of systematic theology, harmonizing predestination, across the entire corpus of the theological topics outside of predestination. It just happened to be that the predestination section triggered the most discussion, that's Calvinism. We then had an isolated set of responses to that specific section, equally as robust with Arminianism, but there was agreement across the board and everything else, all of which was bolstered by several centuries of previous theologians doing the same thing. And now we have a brilliant monk solving a paradox using high philosophy, but only having sought the scriptures it appears after the fact. It's the after the fact part here that is the problem. Robust theology is done by allowing the scriptures to speak for themselves and then concluding out of them what is there. Molinism is an exercise in very high philosophy that then after the fact looked into the Bible to see if there was evidence it could be a solution to the paradox. This method is not automatically wrong, but it is definitely a very, very weak way of doing any theological exercises in general. It is also a dangerous habit if one goes about doing this sort of philosophical insertion into a text that doesn't need to be read that way anyway. So you'll notice that for Molinism, there is an obvious lack of scriptural support in comparison to the other camps. And this is fairly obvious as if middle knowledge wasn't naturally arrived at by plain reading of the scriptures, we would never have had the Calvinist-Arminian debate at all. Moreover, every single one of the scriptures that is appealed to for demonstrating middle knowledge is also easily explained by the other camps as well, which means in all of Molinism's strength, and don't get me wrong here, I'm gonna get lots of emails about this, it's a very powerful explanation, which is why over 80% of the Christian Apologetics Alliance members affirm Molinism as their personal position on this issue. In all of Molinism's strength, it still is not capable of bridging the paradox fully, and it doesn't even have an explanation for any scriptures that the other camps fail to explain. And that's no small thing. So, hopefully now, you have a good idea about the debate. 
You've been given the three largest schools available for dealing with this material. And if you're not persuaded by any of them, that's all right too, because there are tons of smaller schools for you to take a look into as well. Everything from Dominican Thomas, who deny that there are there's a paradox existing there at all, all the way to bordering on open theism, which suggests that the future cannot be known at all, and so God is not responsible for knowing it either, and is just as surprised by your choices sometimes as you are. If you need help, or you want suggestions from where to go from here, or on uh, any specific schools that promote your personal view on the subject, you can ask me, and I will point you in their direction, or in some cases, away from certain schools. For example, fatalism. I will always try to move you away from that end of the spectrum. Very often, Calvinism is conflated with fatalism. This is because both theories ultimately teach the same resulting end for the individual. They both teach that how our life ends up, heaven or hell, is decided by forces other than ourselves. But they're very different because the difference between the two is in how the direction of our lives is decided. In fatalism, it doesn't matter what we do in our lives because there is an inescapable fate at the end. In effect, our actions, attitudes, thoughts, feelings, the way we treat the Bible, for instance, are entirely irrelevant to what will happen to us. Fatalism says do whatever you want with your time here on earth because it doesn't really affect your eternity. And often, even if the term fatalism is never used, we see it employed in attitude. There are times when we say to ourselves in our Christian walks, well, God's already decided whether or not I'm saved, therefore it doesn't really matter if I don't read my Bible. If he really wanted me to read, then he would inspire me to do so. And since my salvation is outside of my control, then it doesn't matter what I do with my time, so I don't need to feel guilty about starting my third playthrough of Skyrim when I haven't spent any time with God today. Can you tell I'm talking about myself? Or we do things like accidentally imply to our children when they come to us with a problem that case sarah, sarah, whatever will be, will be. So where fatalism teaches that the future is fixed regardless of what we do, Calvinism teaches that future events happen as a result of what we do. Our actions matter and play a role in the future. We don't always get to know what that role is precisely or even pragmatically, but we know that they are in fact playing some role. And so when we're trying to make choices with how we spend our time now, we make those choices to the best of our ability with obedience in mind to the God who both ordains the future as well as ordains the means by which we arrive in that future. We do not know what the future will hold, but what we do know is that choices we are making right now are affecting the future. So our actions now are inescapably relevant. We just aren't given all of the information for how all of those actions fit together. For example, the future has been determined in Calvinism, yet we are told in the scriptures to pray. We are also told that prayer has an effect upon God. How could that be true if the future is fixed? Is it true because God has both fixed the future as well as fixed the means by which the future is accomplished and those means include the prayers of his people? Yeah, that's exactly how that works. Or to put it succinctly, fatalism teaches that you are irrelevant in the cosmic shape of the world. Calvinism teaches that before the creation of time, God saw fit to foreordain in us the privilege of being included in his work to shape the world. And that matters that you know that difference. Okay? Ultimately, this is God's great providential care for his creation. He upholds the universe and everyone in it, preserving, guiding, and cooperating in everything that happens, while God oversees both good and evil actions by his creation. With the evil ones, he does so only in as much as they are actions not with the evil itself. 
For although God controls all things, he is not the author of evil, and it is important that we make that clear. God coordinates with an act's effect, but he does not participate in the corruption of an act or the evil of its effect. Everything that people have or experience that is good is given and preserved by God, either directly by him in a special providence or through other people or things. This is why the rain falls on the crops of both believers and unbelievers. This is why good things often happen to really awful people and bad things happen to really wonderful people. But it's that direct providence, that special providence when God steps into the fabric of the human timeline and does something extraordinary. Miracles, for instance. Even after everything, in our confusion and conflation of ideas, theology, philosophy, logic, you name it, and given the obviousness of it all, that every fiber of our being is held together by divine decree, and of course the things that without that divine decree would just be dust aren't going to be able to understand every paradox. Even in this, God loves us and cares for us enough to enter our lives and grant us and those around us the very miracle of his presence. At the end of the day, when everything is said and done and our minds are fatigued from heady apologetic debates between brothers and sisters in Christ, let alone the knots we've put ourselves in potentially becoming more confused by this discussion than we first arrived, here too, God shows us mercy. Because the good news of Jesus Christ is not that our ability to articulate the free will debate is what saves you. The good news is that God himself entered human history in the person of Jesus Christ to deliver us from ourselves. Every generation's concern since the dawn of time has been self, from the first century's self-deception all the way to our absorption in self-care and selfies. Yet there's not a single square inch in this whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not mine. Ooh, sorry. Not sure what that was. That was to wake you up. And because we do not believe that a God who has imbued his creation with reason, sense, and intellect has intended for us to forego their use, and because we know that the best of humans are merely humans at best, we continue to study, to research, and to work out our salvation with healthy and humble reverence that seeks always to edify. And with that, we'll open up for Q&A for a while. So ask your questions. Was that bad? Did you make it? That was okay? Good. Can anybody guess which, what, what position is Anna's position? The last one, one Molinism. It's a good guess. It's wrong, but it's a good guess. <laughs> anyway, and my students aren't allowed to answer this because they've already been through the free will debate. Yeah. <laughs> the answer is it's none of the above. And I'll let you figure out which one it is. Questions? Was that too much? It's okay if you don't have questions. When I was prepping this, it took me like 80. Yeah? So off every, all of it. All of it? What about it? So you think all of it is right? No, I think, I think part of the problem is that we view this whole debate. This is just Anna talking now, um, so bear with me. Part of the problem with this debate is that it's framed from a human perspective. It's framed already dealing on a linear timeline. We're trying to de decide how does God make decisions as we move through time. And the problem with framing this discussion along those lines is that God doesn't exist in time. He's not limited by a linear timeline. It's an, he's in an eternal now, presumably, which means it's entirely possible the answer to this is in what, what happens first. The answer is nothing. What happens is that all of it is simultaneous. So we'll call that Kitconianism. You can just run with that. You can run with that. <laughs> no, 
I, I am a huge fan of looking into some of the other schools, especially the ones that come, just because the ones that, that, that come out of just out of that Calvinism, that beginning Calvinist debate, there are a bunch of schools that nobody talks about. And it's important that you see that there are other things than five-point Calvinism that represent the same material, and it's all Reformed theology. Um, some of the cool stuff that's happened the last year during the pandemic was Mose Amiro's material was translated into English for the first time. And I highly recommend reading that. Those are the guys that I'd say the closest denomination to that material would be the Huguenots. So it's fun stuff, though. It really is. I mean, this is like that six-hour conversation that you didn't realize was going to last six hours. So I don't know who was first. Um, can you explain the definition of hermeneutics and how yes. it's used yes. uh, in these discussions? Sure. Hermeneutics is a study of how to read and interpret the Bible. It can be read and interpret anything, really, but for our discussions, it's the Bible. And we use what's called the hermeneutical circle, right? And what you do first is you, you're, always, you're always making sure your context is your immediate context. If you're looking at a word, for example, you're trying to interpret, you look at the immediate context of the sentence and the immediate context of the paragraph and then uh, the chapter and then the book and all of the historical context around that and all of it has to harmonize, work together. Then on top of that, then you enter the circle, which is called the hermeneutical circle, and that's where you look at the ancient audience and how they would have received this information. You then extrapolate from that ancient audience what the timeless principle is for all people, and then you apply the timeless principle to your current context, the, the, the modern day, and that's called the hermeneutic circle. It's how to interpret scripture accurately. Would you say that in the study of hermeneutics that there is only, when you're reading the text, that there's only one interpretation or only one truth that can be applied to whatever the particular scripture you're looking at? Kind of, yes. So one of the problems you have is you can't have, you can't have interpretations that directly contradict each other, have them both be true at the same time. However, the scriptures have depth that goes so deep that you could have multiple explanations all coming from the same text, all working together, and dependent upon what specific issue you're dealing with, one of, or many of those will work. So when I say is there only one, it, I, I mean that you, you will never have a case apologetics pet peeve, you're sitting in a Bible study, right, and you have two people and they're both interpreting the scripture, and one says it's A and the other one says it's not A, somebody's right and somebody's wrong in that, in that case. Who that is, we'd have to figure it out, but yeah, we never, we never want to have contradicting interpretations. Okay. Corollary interpretations at great depth is awesome, though. Vertical is good, horizontal bad. Okay. Last question. <laughs> okay. uh, one of the groups up here I'm familiar with yeah. Okay, I'm not going to say which one. That's okay. Uh, but it's kind of interesting that when you, not just on this issue, but any Sorry, issue, guys. there's some disagreement, not necessarily with me one-on-one, uh, but it's just with anyone who holds another uh, position. They call them heretics. Why is that? There's a lot of, <laughs> there's a lot of um, misunderstanding on this. Um, and I think, I think there's fear that maybe because we're talking about God's, um, excuse me for that. Um, I need it for my, my throat. That's what happens when you talk for a really long time. Um, because you're talking about God's character and because you're talking about salvation, um, there's a fear that if we get that wrong, we're going to get everything else wrong. That's at least what I gleaned from this. Um, 
So I think that's the level, the weighing in and saying this is heretical if you don't agree with me on these certain topics. Like if you're in, uh, I've been in reform circles where they would say Arminianism is, is a Pelagian heresy or something along those lines. It's either a misunderstanding or I'd say sometimes it's fear. Sometimes it's, there's an egotistical aspect that goes into this as well. But a lot of it is just a misunderstanding of the history, I think. I know, you never know. I mean, you deal, with, you deal with theology jerks all the time in my circles. So, hold on just a minute. I hope that answers your question. Sam, were you next? Yeah. I'm going to try to see if I can steal, steal okay. man, steal, steal person. Steal man, yeah, that's good, that's good. Okay, thanks. Steal person um, is probably more PC. Yeah, yeah. Um, so this is probably a little selfish because I'm trying to, uh, you know, throughout my walk and dealing with people that I work with and at my job, um, it's, it's weird. Like, I, I don't ever get asked this type of a question from my Christian friends. It's very rare. Um, but I had a friend um, who's a, at the time he was a polytheist, and we were having this discussion. And thankfully that night, it had rained, and I was able to draw on a window. <laughs> um, so if, so where I'm at, and why I'm saying it's selfish because I'm, this is where I'm at and trying to figure out, you know, what niche this fits into. Not that it really matters, but the contention that, you know, God existed long before, you know, in the beginning, right? He's eternal. Mm-hmm. And from our point of view, you know, past and future, right? Mm-hmm. And that, and maybe you kind of hit on it, that, like, there's creation and there's space-time bubble, if you will, or whatever, right, and right. then God is everything outside of that. And so that means that, how we interact with God is very on this linear progression, right? But God himself is not that way, right? right? Um, I um, was at a funeral, and in my mind, the way my mind works, uh, it was for my mother, and I'm like, the concept of my mother waiting for me, it's is like I'm already there because I know that she was, right. you know, like that sort of a concept, right? Right. Um, time doesn't exist. Um, but anyway... But the problem that I found is that's getting more into thinking as opposed to scripture. There's no right. scripture that says that. Yes, good. So does that put me in, in the middle for now? Not that I'm worried about it. I'm just happy to finally learn what it's called. Because to me, I've always felt like it was a both and, but bigger than we can really comprehend too. The, 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 I would say all the camps would recognize my little, that little end group. If I had a, if I had a staunch... Calvinist representative, Staunch Mollesley, William Lane Craig's up here, James White's up here, Mike Winger's up here, right? right? And they're with me, and they're looking at me being like, okay, that was a, that was a real quick analysis of, <laughs> right. those, of those positions, but these are guys who personally hold to these positions. Yeah. They would say, they would, all three of them would agree with you that, that's, that God is outside of time. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, I think that's a, a really powerful thing, because it's not a position. All positions would say that. The reason why these positions exist is for us to be able to try to articulate what's happening. Yeah. Um, which is already a weakness, right? <laughs> right? Significant weakness, as we've just demonstrated. Um, but your, I would need to know more about where you stand on the point, the, the point where you become a Christian mm. in order to categorize you or help drive where on the spectrum you would go. I would need more information because yeah. that alone doesn't help me. That's the, the linchpin. Yes. The linchpin is who yeah. moves first. Yeah. Is it God or is it us? 
Mm. And both camps, the Arminian camp and the Calvinist camp, would both say, well, it's God, but the Calvinist would say it's God that does the driving all the way through. And it's the Arminian would say, yeah, it's God that does. He is absolutely pursuing all of his people. Mm -hmm. But it's that he can't actually make the call. You have to make the call first. Um, and they would they would be they'd be up here, and so the Calvinists would be saying, "Well, that's a work," mm-hmm. and the Arminian would say, "No, it's not a work. <laughs> right, um, you right. can't juxtapose those two things. This is a special case." Mm-hmm. So that's why both are biblical. Okay. Yeah. Well, I know where I stand on that, and I'll keep that to myself for now. Yeah, that's just in case. It's probably safe. Hardcore fans. That's, yeah, that's, that's probably safe. I think based on everybody that's here tonight, like I'm really I'm honored you came out for something this this in depth because that was a lot for an hour. I know. Hence, like the long introduction. Hey, um, how would a Calvinist reconcile um, unconditional election with, say, the Great Commission or um, just evangelism as a whole? Good. That's why not a lot of Calvinists are evangelists, have you noticed okay, that? Okay, awesome. You've noticed cool. That? No, they don't. I mean, cool. I'm, I'm allowed to say that because I graduated from a Calvinist school. you got to be careful with the words. <laughs> no, there are lots of really great Calvinist evangelists, but one, yeah, one of the things that happens with that camp on the regular is that they'll say something like, well, God's doing the, God's doing the electing, and that is kind of the evangelism, which is why you don't see real heavy Calvinist emphasis on going out and like with your Bible on the street. Yeah, but the critical thing here is that if John Calvin were standing up here, he would go, no, 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 that's completely unacceptable, and what they're being is disobedience, because whether or not we can pragmatically say what we're doing out there evangelizing is making Christians, that doesn't matter. What matters is obedience, and Christ says we are to go do this, and what we are doing might be the, the, the way that he's accomplishing election. We don't know. We're never going to know. So we're obedient even though we recognize it may be completely irrelevant. Does that make sense? It's yeah. The now and the not yet is, is what you'd want to look up as far as the, the explanation for why. Yeah. You. You're welcome. <laughs> Q? Uh, so I got a knock on my door a couple weeks ago, and it was a guy uh, just... Yes. Going door to door, telling yeah. about his faith and stuff. Yeah, great. Uh, so we had a nice long conversation about that. We had some disagreements, disagreements. But about halfway through, uh, he called me a Calvinist as like an insult, like, like kind of angry about him. And I realized uh, at that point, I mean, that was a it was a salvation issue for him. Like it was Calvinism versus Arminianism versus everything else. Like if you didn't agree with that, like that affected your salvation. Yeah. And I was wondering the people who are currently in, I guess, the larger apologetic sphere. So the people who are out there like arguing the most heavily in each camps for the higher thinkers, like nicely higher thinkers, um, for the people who are out there like really doing the most apologetics for it, mm-hmm. is that a salvation issue for them as well? Or is it just the churches that take that and run with it really aggressively that see it as that? This is anecdotal, but it's the latter in my experience. Because the vast, the guys that I like, like James White, Jeff Durbin, like the guys that are really have the real major podcasts that are very much they're Calvinists through and through, and they're evangelizing as Calvinists, really excellent, really, and would never say to an Arminian, you're a heretic. They'd say you're inconsistent scripturally, yeah. and then they'd probably browbeat you with their Bible because they know it so well. Um, but and if you really want to see solid teaching that's evangelism from that perspective, I recommend their podcast highly. Um, I use their, their stuff all the time depending upon what's convenient because that's one of the great positives of being an apologist is I can jump into any camp I need to based on who's standing in front of me. So, but here's something that I encountered moving here because I'm not from around here, right? Same. Yeah. First time, I, I just told this story. First time I encountered anything for missions 
here was a case in my office of a woman sobbing because her, her son had become a Calvinist and she, she believed he was going to hell. And so it was just me explaining what Calvinism was. And she was shocked and it was because she was attending a church that had just gotten done teaching very, very militantly that any iteration of Calvinism is heresy and you've left Christianity if you go there. So I, that's just anecdotal though. I don't, I don't know. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks, you. Hi, Anna. Hello. Uh, this is really good. I have, I have five questions, but they're all yes or no questions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just go through. Is that fair? Yeah, it's fine. That's There's fine. no one else in love. That was, I get it now. That's why you're standing back. <laughs> um, I just, responding to your graph that I hadn't seen before, are Amish open theists? Not entirely, but, but functionally, yes. I'll be darned. Okay. Um, are any denominations connected to Molinism? Zero. There are no denominations that affirm Molinism. I'll be darned. Okay. Um, has anybody pointed out, and I don't understand any of the words I'm about to say, but I seem to see, this seems like a kind of a cool parallel between Molinism and like the multiverse and string theory. Like, yes, and there's a the reason, there's a reason for that. And the reason is, is that no one knew anything about Molinism until Alvin Plantinga wrote his book using Molina's information in his book on multiverses and string theory um, to represent a bridge in theology, and then William Lane Craig took it and ran with it. And now Molinism has become this huge, like if you're debating at any point in time, in apologetics in particular, you'll see almost everybody picks Molinism to be their personal stance. And I suspect it'll be more popular as time goes on, but it, it's brand spanking new is why. So, who is the guy who came up with Molinism in the first place? Louis de Molina. He's a Jesuit uh, priest. He, I, th I thought he was a contemporary with the others. He is a contemporary, but he was on the Catholic side of things, and he was primarily ignored for being too heady, and it just disappeared. So it's new as far as it's new as getting traction. Right. Gotcha. That right. wasn't one of my questions. Right. Those last ones, they don't get Right, right, right. Well, I mean, he was, he, was, he was an icky Catholic, and Protestantism wasn't into Catholicism, so they just ignored him. Okay. Yeah. Uh, is it logically possible for a person to be an Arminian and also believe that you cannot lose your salvation? Is it logically possible? Yes. Yes. I can see, I can see a scenario. That's not classical Arminianism, though, because the whole point of the contingency factor is that you can resist God, and if you can resist God, then you can resist him to the point of losing your salvation. It's possible. Yeah. But... Can you believe that once, once you take up the provenient grace side of things and you're like, yes, that then you can't lose your salvation because it becomes irresistible at that point? Like, mm. once you're in it, become, maybe it'd be, a, it'd be a nuanced. Um, I'm trying I, to think I if think there's a position that does really that. really common. I think there's a lot of people who would say, when it really comes down to it, I'm an Arminian, or even if they didn't know that terminology, they would yeah. say they would probably say I'm definitely not a Calvinist. Oh yeah. But they would also say, well. Oh yeah, yeah. And there are positions called like four point Calvinism, where you start to play with the atonement. And there's um, Amaraldianism again. I brought that up. That's something people should look into because it's fun. Um, and it helps again uh, seat some of the, the five point parts. But yeah, I can. I mean, I run into folks all the time that don't quite fit into any classical category, but that's why I like to teach the classical categories and then you can figure out the nuance from there. So I don't see a logical problem with that. Okay. 
Yeah. Last one. Yes. So um, my denomination is the Vineyard. Yes. And uh, the Vineyard has readily affirmed, particularly not with Molinism, but with the Calvinism position and the Arminian position. And long story short, the answer is the Bible teaches both. It has to be both. But if you settle comfortably in one tribe or another right on, we're not going to argue about it. Right. Do you know of other denominations who have been vocal about a stance that says, yeah, it's, it's up to you? EV Free does that, if I'm not mistaken. It's been a while since I double-checked that. Um, what did you say? It was Calvinism all the way, like officially though. That was back in years ago. Yeah. Okay. Well, maybe they took a position I don't know about. So the 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 short answer is no, I don't. But I, I could look it up. Yeah. Yeah. I'm done. <laughs> Anybody else? Are you more confused than when you walked in? Can you be all of it? Can you be all of it? I mean, like if you're one on a Monday and another one on a Tuesday, or <laughs> that's kind of my. I, so the is no. so not really. You can't. Yeah. You can't be everything because you do have to make. You have to, if you're going to take a stance, you do have to decide who who's the primary mover in salvation. Is it God or is it you? Um, I don't think you can escape that. Um, the, the closest would be Molinism because they try to have their cake and eat it too. Because they say, well, it's both. They say it's, it's God, God, is, God is beckoning permanently, but it's you who are libertarianly free to do whatever you want with the beckoning. So, um, yes, uh, So s some people say that apologists are just what she was saying, that they, and you sort of alluded to that earlier where you say, you know, I can jump on whatever train mm -hmm. of whoever's in front of me. Mm -hmm. And apologists sometimes are said said to be, you know, wishy-washy, mm -hmm. can't stand on anything. Mm -hmm. They go with whoever they're mm -hmm. talking to, mm -hmm. whatnot. That's one thing. The other thing is, uh, what about, like, Job and, you know, the conversation with Satan? And, and he says, you know, try my servant Job. And did he know that he would? And, you know, does that come up in this argument that you're talking about tonight? The, the story of Job and how does that play into uh, God's knowledge, sovereignty, mm -hmm. free will of Job? Mm -hmm. I mean, I, for, let me address the wishy-washy part. You're talking to an apologist that is eclectic. So you have a specific apologist in front of you. I'm not going to be the same as other apologists if you've looked. And so there, there are guys who take a firm position on this. Um, I don't because I can't bring myself to do so in, in an intellectually honest way because I know all the weaknesses and I can see it and it's a secondary issue. So primarily if I'm talking to somebody, if I'm evangelizing and they go straight to free will... I'm going to use whatever they need in that moment to get them off of free will and onto what we need to actually be talking about. So it's not, it's not like I desire to be wishy-washy. It's more of I desire to do my job well, but I, I, get the, I, get the, um, I get the objection. I desire to do my job such that we can isolate what the actual problem is for the person and why they're not, they don't belong to Christ yet. So, but I'm eclectic, and that's, I'm weird. You know, I am. 
And you guys, I mean, there's tons of other people to pick from, and I recommend highly looking, looking into some of them. Um, for the Job thing, I mean, that really is an exercise in genuine sovereignty, right? And what does God do in that scenario, too, with Job? He doesn't give him an explanation for why things happened, which, again, is it's an absolutely an exercise in pure sovereignty. So, yeah, absolutely, Job fits into this. Um, it doesn't fit into the salvation aspect to it, but just in general, the I, I work and I move, and if this is my creation, and there are things that you're not going to understand is totally something that plays into this. Does that answer your question? I can't tell. Okay. Yes? Would you mind explaining uh, primary, secondary, tertiary issues and where free will falls, first off? And then secondly, will you bring up Pharaoh and Exodus about hardening of Pharaoh's heart in the plagues mm -hmm. and how that ties into free will? Yes. Primary, secondary, and tertiary. That was my husband, by the way. I didn't, I didn't ask him to say that. Um, he likes to do this to me. <laughs> um, so primary, secondary, and tertiary issues in, in Christianity. A primary issue is what is the gospel? That's the primary issue. What is the good news and what are the components that comprise the good news and getting it right? So those are things like the divinity of Christ, um, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Um, and finally, the physical resurrection of Christ, right? When you, when you start tweaking those three categories, you start getting into alternative gospels or false Christs. And so we call those three topics the primaries. Of course, there, there are ways we can extrapolate out a little bit, but that's when we're dealing with primary issues in Christianity, what makes Christianity Christian? What do all the denominations agree to? It's those three topics. Then you move on to secondary issues. Very important, but... If your theology is not quite in agreement with all the other denominations, well, then that's okay because you're still a Christian. You just have some disagreement over some things. Um, secondary issues would be things like um, how you articulate free will. I mean, tonight, that would be a secondary issue. Um, secondary issues would be things like... Um, how does the sanctification process work precisely? You know, is it pure synergism? Is God move more? Do you move more? How much of that? You know, things like that. Tertiary issues would then be, how do you set up your church service? Do you have communion every Sunday or is it once a month or is it once a year? Um, do you use pews or seats? You know, there would be ecclesiology, that study. How, how, does, how do you set up the role of the Christian life during the week? Does that answer your question, Justin? Okay. Uh, and the second question was talking about hardening of Pharaoh's heart. That's a really specific one. And the reason why that's a specific one for this case is because in that section of Exodus, talking about, this is, this is during Passover with the plagues and everything, and it's in three separate places, there are three descriptions of what happens to Pharaoh. And one, it says, God hardens Pharaoh's heart against Moses. In another one, it says, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Um, and a third, it alludes to them both working at the same time. So harmonizing it, we say it was both, and we're not entirely sure exactly how the free will works. Um, was it that God specifically designed Pharaoh such that the plagues would be executed upon Egypt to demonstrate the Passover, to demonstrate God's power? Was it that really Pharaoh was seeking to harden his heart against Yahweh and the results of which were these things? Or was it some 
combination of the two that would literally be the Calvinist versus Arminian versus Molinist positions all laid out in the same chapter of the Bible. Yeah. Yeah? <laughs> okay. Just making sure. You don't. You don't. I'm sorry. It's part of the process. I would say that for the most part, um, well, I don't know if I want to say that. I don't know if um, me coming here is mm -hmm. my decision mm -hmm. or if God already determined that this is where I was coming. Or both, right? Right. right. Working simultaneously. Right. The, 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 you're, you're definitely not a robot. Okay, so God's not like tweaking your biology right now to force you to ask me that question, right? Um, at the same time, we have that, that divide, the providence, the regular providence overall, overarching providence versus special providence. We do have instances where God comes down and inserts himself in the life of a human being because he's pleased to do so. And these are, those are those miraculous things. That's why I showed the picture that I did. Um, divine healing, for example, answer to immediate answer to prayer. Um, we have cases coming out of the Middle East of Bedouin tribes who have never heard about Jesus or been exposed to Christianity coming to uh, Christian missionaries and saying, Jesus appeared to me in a dream and told me I needed to come talk to you. So, I mean, that's the kind of thing we're looking for. So it could be any combination of all of those things. It could be that you have points in your life where God goes, nope, hard pass. You're not going there. Um, or where he permits you to go and do as you wish in a way that is genuinely almost uh, libertarianly free. But the overarching principle that you are guided and you are upheld in his providential care at all times is there. So it's, it's both. Okay. Uh, when the Lord uses the word if in... Well, I guess one of the easiest things to look at is the, uh, the various uh, givings of the law. Uh, if you will do this, observe this, then this will happen. Mm -hmm. If you don't, he gives a list of what will happen, mm -hmm. and he tells them to choose. You know, uh, remember Joshua saying, choose life. Mm -hmm. um, so would that be an example of free will that you might use in your discussions or how oh, does sure. how do how do these groups right uh, how do these groups deal with that deal with that particular yeah. situation yeah <laughs> um so the calvinist would say in that in that scenario that you do genuinely have free will once you're once you're redeemed so that you do the, the choice to obey or to fail to obey and God setting up in his mercy the fact that he gives you the parameters by which you get to, you know what to expect if you disobey. You know, he doesn't have to do that, right? Um, that's a really, really wonderful mercy. So the Calvinists would say, you know, these are God's people already. They're already in that potentially regenerate state. And now that is a sanctification thing, right? You're working synergistically with the Holy Spirit to accomplish the future. And so they were, they're freely choosing within the boundaries that God is setting up and that it's his predestination that is setting the boundaries by which they're moving, right? So then you have Arminianism, which would not take issue with that at all. They'd say something along the same lines because, again, that's this, we're only ever dealing with regeneration. We're out dealing with free will in general. And the Molinists could say, 
that those if-then scenarios are those counterfactuals, right? God just has a knowledge of all possible worlds and all if-then scenarios, and he knows what you would pick in every single one of them. Therefore, he's divinely guiding everybody, and that is what predestination is. So they'd all pretty much align. It's just how they'd articulate what's actually happening. But the, the pragmatic result is the same. I don't know if that helps you or not. No, I'm sorry. Hey, I like That's fair. You do not know what the end's going to be. We don't know what the end's going to be. We don't even know why the end's going to be the way that it is. We just know that it will be. I got another one. Okay. Okay. Um, Quick, bail me out. No. I used the bomb. It's okay. Um, I elected to do this. It, right. it seems to me, I could be wrong, but it seems like open theism is gaining momentum. Very much so. And I can't quite wrap my head around it. So um, would you take another go at summarizing that for us? And then if you feel so inclined to warn us if you think a warning is dictated, because I... I think a warning is dictated. I, in fact, I teach against open theism on campus. I think so too, but I'm really not yeah. sure why because I, I can't quite get there. So, okay, open theism teaches that we're misunderstanding linear time completely and that all the future is is not like a thing that will happen, that we should be conceiving of the future as a limitless, infinite realm of possibilities. And because it's a limitless, infinite realm of possibilities, there is nothing to know. It's not a knowable thing. And because it's not a knowable thing to begin with, it's not wrong to say that God knows all things, but he doesn't know the future because it cannot be known. So what open theism then suggests is that God is equally surprised by how you're moving through your life watching you as you are into the future and he can he can guide he can guide the present a little but as you move forward again then he has to renegotiate the terms and he's an infinite being so he can do that and the reason why I don't like it is because I don't know how I could possibly be an open theist and also affirm the teaching that the, the future is we're predestined because um, that, that definitely requires a future element to this. I also don't like any suggestion that says that God's surprised. I, and they're willing to say that. And I, it's, not that I, it's not that I think it's automatically an anti-Christian position. I just think it's so, it weakens God to such a high degree that I can't, I can't, I can't read this Bible the way that it sits and arrive at open theism. And I have a problem if I can't do that. So I, I get the principle, but do they, do they point to particular texts and say, I get it as a philosophy, I don't get how it's more to scripture at all. Is there? So the only, the only, I've seen this argued twice now, and the only scripture I know of that I've watched it argued specifically, I forget his name, very prominent open theist, his name escapes me right now. Probably Gregory Boyd. That's it, yeah. thank you. Um, he goes to the passages in... I want to say it's Lamentations where God says things like, um, you've grieved me so greatly for what you've done. And he's like weeping with the people God is anthropomorphically. And he, what he argues is that um, that weeping is a genuine response of a surprised God to what his people had, had done. Um, and I, I, if I were to steel man the position, I've, I've never seen this argued, but if I were to steel man it, the place that I would go is when God says of the child sacrificing in the Old Testament, I've never even conceived of this level of evil. 
how could you possibly be engaging in it? So like that could be a, way, a place where I could see it argued. I never have, but that's all I got. Yeah, go ahead. Okay, um, stop me if I'm wrong. You aren't, won't hurt my feelings because okay. I don't believe either. Okay, cool. I'm not one to keep things to myself, I okay. believe. Um, okay, but I learned in my little intro to theology class, I learned a difference between open theism and growing block universe theory. Mm-hmm. Um, and so open theism, as we learned, we didn't learn to believe it. It just, mm-hmm. it was on the table. Um, but it was like God chooses to hinder, to restrict God's self from his foreknowledge of the future in order to sit with us better as we go through the future. So it wasn't like, God can't see the future. It's like God chooses not to. And then the growing block universe theory was there's no such thing as future. It's just like a concept in our minds. So are those actually two separate things or are they just halves of open theism? Oh. Because what you you described kind of sounded like the two of them mashed. Yeah, I can see that. Kind of. I... God limiting his own knowledge in order to sit with us. I know, so that isn't that weird? <laughs> well, well, it's it's. A, I I love what it's. There's there's some ingenious ways of articulating things mm-hmm. about God that I it surprised me to this day. Mm-hmm. But it's I always arrive at the same thing. It's like, could you point out in the Bible where any of that could be arrived at in any way, shape, or form? And that's right. always. And that's where, so it's, it's like, okay, well, I can sit and talk about this and converse and, it's, and yeah. all that, but if I can't get it out of this, right. I have a really hard time mm-hmm. using it. Well, like you said, a lot of open theists um, point to like the highly emotional yes. um, yeah. texts of God, but also I think it's in Genesis where it says God grieved and regretted that he ever made man to mm-hmm. walk the earth, where mm-hmm. it's like, oh, God can regret, mm-hmm. what? And mm-hmm. so, um, yeah, mm-hmm. but. Yeah, you may be onto something. I, I don't think I know enough about that subject matter to answer you with, a, okay. with an intelligent answer. Okay, cool. Yes, thank you for raising that, though. So to go off of that, oh, good. would that not, because it, it, it's coming more on the emotional side of things, Yeah. would it not have the fallacy of the same argument of could God make a mountain big enough that he couldn't move it? Does that, because it almost seems like that's sort of the argument that's being made. He is restricting himself from the future so he's able to be in that moment. So would that not be the same fallacy right there? I see. A non sequitur. Interesting. So a non sequitur, that's a big word for, uh, it's a logical impossibility. You don't have to deal with it because it it couldn't happen to begin with. So the blind people will say, can God make a rock so big that he can't pick it up, right, if he's all powerful? It's it's called a non sequitur. Yeah. One of the the things that, um, and limiting God, so defining God, right? Because God, there are things that God cannot do, like God cannot sin, God cannot not be God, you know, things along those lines. So in this particular case, is that could that be a non sequitur that God is capable of limiting his own infinite nature? Because is that not one of the divine attributes of God? He's omnipresent, he's omnipotent, he's omnipotent. Yes. Powerful. Yes, I'm, but if I were to steal man that, so you're on to something, I think. I'd have to think about it yeah. that much deeper than, than I am right now, but 
to steal man of position there, we could say that he did do that in the person of Jesus Christ when he took on flesh for a time, right? And he took on, and he limited, he limited his power in that way. So could he do it a different way? I don't, I don't know. It makes me uncomfortable, right? All of my, 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 my apologist senses, my spidey senses are tingling like this. There's something wrong here. Um, I think you're probably on to something. Because, yeah, that would be, again, it's, where does he do that? And wouldn't, can omniscience limit omniscience? I don't know. You guys are really making me work tonight. I don't, I don't, think, I don't think so, but I don't want to misspeak. I'll have to think about it. I'm sorry. Yeah, well, that's but that's part of the open theism aspect. Is what they do is they 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 redefine. Maybe that's what it is that I have a problem with. Here's something that just occurred to me. One of the things that's a problem with open theism, the redefining something about God, the aspect of God, that has been widely held for centuries upon centuries upon centuries by Christians in the past, and now suddenly we're arriving at. 2021, and we're going to change an attribute of God to something else that's completely foreign to the history of... Because you know, God be at the level of people, and God is not at the level of people. God is above everything and everybody. Yes. So. Yeah. I don't, I don't know if they would want... I, I don't think there's anything malicious necessarily going on with, with wanting to lower God to the level of man, but sometimes that happens by accident, because we're sinful and we're developing theologies. But yeah, I'd say that's Maybe that's what's making me uncomfortable. I don't. I don't like it when you have theologians who are hyper intelligent, and um, I mean, just incredible thinkers. But they're presenting material that anybody's presenting material that is so brand new or just completely upends things that have been widely held by other Christians hearing from the Holy Spirit for two thousand years, like. It's not that it has to automatically be wrong. It's that we should be said that like thousands of red flags should go up in your mind and we should absolutely investigate each and every single one of them before we move forward. Um, how does when Christ calls himself I am fit into tonight's discussion and how would Anna uh, define I am when Christ is saying I am the I am? When Christ says he is the I am, it's because he is the I am. He is 100% divine. He's the second person of the Trinity. He pre-existed his, um, his, um, he pre-existed before he was Jesus walking on earth. So when you, when you encounter, for example, God being seen in the Old Testament, you're seeing the pre-incarnate Christ in those cases. Sometimes it's the Holy Spirit, but primarily it's the pre-incarnate Christ. And so when Jesus says that he is the I am, he's taking the divine name for himself, he is absolutely making a very firm, very open, very clear case that he himself is God in flesh. Um, how does that play into tonight's discussion? I'm not, I'm not, are you going, are you looking for something in particular? That's such a big <laughs> topic that my it brain's is. going, Wah. And just those two words, you know, mm-hmm. always, um, oh. in, in the scripture, he used those uh, in specific instances uh, when he wanted to, uh, you know, he even used it when he told him to go get the donkey. When they uh, told him to go get the what? The donkey. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So Before Abraham was, I am. Yeah. Now, all those instances, uh-huh. uh, to me, it, it is a statement of um, 
of, of who he is mm -hmm. uh, and also that he has always been, like you were saying. Yeah. Uh, and so in tonight's discussion, it, if, if he, to me, it, it's saying um, that he is outside of time. Mm. Uh, in that statement, when he says "I'm the I am," mm -hmm. uh, that means that he is the past, the present, and the future all at the same time. The Alpha and the Omega. Yeah, yes, that he exists outside of time, not within his creation of time. Right. Us. Oh, yeah. Totally. That, that's so, what it means to yeah, me. Yeah. 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 No, that's great. Uh, existing outside of time. Yes, because he's second person of the Trinity, but also in this special providence, right, entering human history in the person of Jesus Christ and operating within a linear timeline in order to accomplish Calvary yep, yep, all at the same time. Yeah, totally fine. Anybody else? I Yeah, or they pick up stones to stone him. That's that's a <laughs> for blasphemy. Yeah. Oh sure. Oh sure. One of the most. What'd you say? It wasn't really a question. He was. It was just. It, yeah, Jim's one of my students, and um, at, at UT, right? Huh? Staff, but you're still one of my students. And professor. That's what I mean. He's, he, he honors me by his presence once a week. Um, and he was just making a comment about the I am in the, in the garden of Gethsemane right before Jesus gets arrested. It wasn't really a question. He was just talking about how it always hit him, just kind of backpacking off the last question. I think you alluded to it, and I was, I was thinking about it. Uh, and you were talking about the great thinkers and... Uh, they're kind of rewriting the interpretations of the scriptures, things that have been believed for thousands of years. Uh, when one goes to get a doctorate, let's say, um, and he has to write a thesis. My uncle told me, because he got his doctorate in theology, yeah. that you have to write something that no one else ever has written on or, 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 or come up with conclusions, whatever, however you do it. Right. It's got to be totally different. Mm -hmm. So a lot of, the, are, are these guys just going out and defending their, you know, their thesis yeah. or the books that they've written on some new thinking that they've come up with? It can't be. Or... Are they truly, you know, it seems to me, you know, mm -hmm. like you can tell that they're mm -hmm. not being led mm -hmm. totally by the Spirit of God. Yeah. And I, I just, you know, wonder. <laughs> it, it, it's definitely possible. I've seen it in a couple of cases. I mean, I've known, sadly, I've known guys in my own seminary who were not believers who were getting PhDs. Um, and their material was, it was to sell books kind of scenario. So yeah, that's a, that's a possibility. Overall, probably not. I mean, it's, it is hard to get, to get a PhD. And yes, you do have to do those sorts of things. But within the realm of Christianity, you have the option of doing a reference material instead. So like if you do the work of putting together and synthesizing a bunch of 
upset me. Much, oh, sorry. <laughs> much of information, um, synthesizing much information as a reference material, you can also do that option. So I, I, I suspect and I would hope that, that if you really didn't have anything new to offer, that you would opt for that option just so that you were being a consistent believer. But you, it's totally something we can see. Afraid to turn it on? Then? No, no, should I turn off mine? Oh. Hey, Anna. <laughs> How you doing? Um, uh, thank you so much. I didn't want to stop you. Is there anything else you want to cover? You want to hit another topic? <laughs> this will be it for a minute. This will, this will be it for a minute because i got to give my brain a break and write a bunch of curriculum. Um, but then maybe we'll pick up in the fall if you'll, if you'll still have us. That's right. Stay so, tuned. Yeah. Um, thanks so much for coming. Laura, I think you win the Stump the Apologist Award. You can you do. pick up a t-shirt on you the do. way out. You do. Well, no, I love it. Thank you. Well done. <laughs> hey, guys, thanks so much for coming. One quick reminder, if you want to support Anna, just pop her name in the Google along with Rocio Christie, and then I encourage you to do that. Thanks for coming, you guys. Have a good night.